0: Welcome to Chattachesis. I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback, PhD, and I'm also a Deacon of the Diocese of Des Moines, Iowa. I'm your host of Chattachesis, a podcast series for clergy that helps them find creative and fresh ways to share the gospel message and promote missionary discipleship. This episode is brought to you by Christ in Us and Sadlier's bilingual program, Cristo in Nosotros. All children are introduced to seven strands of spirituality by some of the giants in the Catholic mystical tradition. Start your journey now at sadlyreligion.com forward slash CIU. Today, I'm very pleased and honored to have Bishop Andrew Cousins, Auxiliary Bishop in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, Uh, Our our Bishop Cousins is also the chairman of the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis, and we have him on today to talk about the USCCB's plans to encourage and foster Eucharistic revival in in the church in the United States. So before we get into that wonderful and important and timely topic, Bishop Cousins, thank you so much for being on our show.
1: Delighted to be with you, Deacon Matt. It's a great privilege.
0: So this is a podcast for clergy by clergy. Um, I'm sure you're very well known in some quarters and by some, but uh, maybe if you'd say a few words about yourself, uh, maybe your role there in the diocese. Yes.
1: Yeah, so I was ordained a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis in 1997, and then in 2013, my life changed dramatically when uh, Pope Francis appointed me as an auxiliary bishop in the Archdiocese. Before that, I was a teacher of sacramental theology at our St. Paul Seminary here, And so uh, I got to teach the course on the Eucharist, which is part of my great love for the Eucharist, but I was ordained an auxiliary bishop in December of 2013, and since then have been about the work of assisting the archbishop in everything that we do in the archdiocese.
0: Wonderful. Um, And yes, I'm sure that that. Uh, professor role play, has played well into your role, particularly with the, the Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. And I'm sure you'll have something to say uh, based on that experience uh, with our topic today on Eucharistic revival. So why don't we jump into that? And uh, you're, you're the man to talk to about this. Uh, what precipitated the bishop's decisions to focus on, the Euchar- on a Eucharistic revival? What led up to that decision?
1: Well, the interesting thing is that the plans for the revival started before I was the chair of the committee. I was elected to be chair of the committee in November of 2020, but even before that, the bishops were really uh, shocked by the Pew study that came out in the fall of 2019, and that got a lot of people's attention. Bishop Barron, who was chair of the Committee on Evangelization and Catechism at the time, really got the idea of trying to organize a Eucharistic revival, and bishops met about this as early as January of 2019 and uh, bishop committee chairs got together to talk about this, and we were planning on rolling it out in June of 2020. So the first meetings were in January of 2020, and then we were going to roll it out in June, but then COVID hit in March. And what that did is, of course, delayed the plans for the rollout, but it also made the revival more necessary. And so by the time we got to discuss it as bishops in November of 2020, most bishops said this was really providential. And they believed that the time was really urgent to begin such a revival. And so we began our planning in the spring of this whole past spring of 2021, really meeting with national leaders in evangelization and catechesis around the country, meeting with various leaders of apostolates with the idea of a revival, which a revival is not necessarily just a program that the bishops want to roll out. But as I've been talking about it, we want to start a fire. Mm. And we know that so many people in our country love the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. And so we want to use them and really in- empower them to witness to the gift that the Eucharist is so that we can help to win back some of those, now we say 60% of Catholics or more who don't mm-hmm. understand the power of Jesus's presence in the Eucharist.
0: So if I can jump in, and by the way, I love the image of fire, very Pentecostal, and certainly what we need right now. Um Uh, just a a strong rush of wind of the Holy Spirit. Um, I want to go back to the the Pew study, which sounds like it was a very important, uh, pivotal sort of uh, study, which led to the bishops considering this revival. So could you say a little bit about the study for those who might not be aware of what it is or what was in it that concerned the bishops? Could you just talk briefly about that?
1: Yeah, so the Pew, they, they're a great research institute. They research lots of things. And they wanted they did a study on Catholic belief in the Eucharist. And the question that they asked was, you know, do you believe that the Eucharist um, is really the body and blood of Christ in terms of transubstantiation, the word they put in there, or is it only a symbol? Now, in some ways, those of us who do Catholic theology would, pro- would say that probably wasn't the best question. Right. Now, we've actually... <laughs> We've actually decided that we're going to redo that study. We're going to do a, de- a deeper dive into that this fall, and, uh, and Kara's going to help us with that. So we're very excited about that. Yeah, um, that's but wonderful. taking the study at face value, what it showed is that uh, at two-thirds of Catholics said, no, they don't believe um, in transubstantiation, um, but that the Eucharist is a symbol and even 22% of those 60 that didn't believe said they understood the church's teaching on transubstantiation, but didn't believe it. And so um, that was regardless of, um, you know, the, the confusing language, because, of course, the Eucharist is both a symbol and really Jesus' body and blood. In other words, it's what we call a real symbol, right? It's, it's uh, some, the symbol is so real. That in fact Jesus becomes present through the symbol, right? So it's not that the uh, appearances of bread disappear; it's that the bread itself disappears. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so, the um, uh, but uh, the uh, in, so regardless of how you understand that, it still is a troubling fact
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, that so many Catholics would um would not identify with the Church's traditional teaching around transubstantiation, even if that we know that that also has to be explained well, right?
0: Right. And that, that, that was actually my next question. Um, maybe just bringing out that sacramental theology professor in you. Um, do you see this as primarily a catechetical issue? Is it, is it in your mind that if people just knew the truth, or is it that we're not explaining the truth very well? Uh, or is it, that, um, is it something else?
1: Yeah, it's a manifold issue. So part yeah. of it is certainly failures that we've had in catechesis and mm-hmm. not explaining the truth well. Mm -hmm. but we all know that um, faith isn't simply something that appeals to the intellect. It also Mm -hmm. has to appeal to the will and to the Mm -hmm. heart of the person. Mm -hmm. And so if we're going to foster faith in the Eucharist, we need to not only teach clearly about what the Eucharist is, but we need to provide what we would call, you know, charismatic experiences Mm -hmm. of Eucharistic encounter, (laughs) Mm -hmm. right? So a place where someone can Hear the teaching and the invitation to believe in Jesus's real presence, but then also experience that. Mm-hmm. And this is really what our faith tries to do by the beauty of the mass and the beauty of our worship and the beauty of our devotions. We try to provide experiences. I always give the example of Saint Elizabeth Ann Seton, Seton who was converted to the Catholic faith by a Eucharistic procession. She mm-hmm. was in Italy. She wasn't. She was. She was, a, she was an Episcopalian. She saw a Eucharistic procession go by, and the Holy Spirit spoke to her heart. Before she ever heard the teaching on transubstantiation, mm-hmm. she knew Jesus was present there mm-hmm. in the Blessed Sacrament. And so um, we have to provide those experiences along with beautiful catechesis, clear mm-hmm. catechesis, also, you know, allowing people to experience the beauty of our worship, mm-hmm. and even allowing people to experience how the Eucharist leads us to want to make a gift of ourselves in service, right? This is right. what Pope Benedict called you know, the sacrament of charity, the Eucharist is a sacrament of charity. It drives us to want to give our lives in service. So we want to explain the fullness of the teaching about the Eucharist, but also provide experiences where people can encounter Christ's presence in the Eucharist.
0: It sounds like the the bishops, um, uh, at least as you see it, the bishops are really treating this as an evangelization issue, because evangelization, as you're mentioning, is manifold in its processes and dynamism and, you know, purpose, and it addresses both the content of the faith, which catechesis tends to focus on, that fides qua, but also the response of faith, that fides qua, and trying to bring those things together. Um, I just, I'm really excited the more I listen to you about, um, it it really sounds like uh, the bishops are really listening to to these different uh, organizations and groups you mentioned just a bit ago and really t- addressing this under the auspices of new evangelization. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, it's definitely an opportunity to put into practice the new evangelization, which is why I like it so much. It's a, it's kind of a, in some ways, it's a concrete thing, right, or Eucharistic mm-hmm. revival, but we can use the tools we've mm-hmm. learned from the new evangelization, and we can put those tools into practice, whether that's small groups so when it gets to the parish year of this revival we want to have small groups offered in every parish that we can and we'll train people and facilitate those and provide Mm -hmm. good material for those but the idea is allow people to experience faith sharing in small group and how your own understanding of the eucharist could grow by someone else sharing their understanding of the eucharist and in light of that
0: so this is definitely not just revival of Eucharistic faith uh, or faith in the Eucharist uh, in transubstantiation, in the real presence. It's really a revival of faith in general. Uh, and, and you're seeing that the, uh, that is the full context of this Eucharistic revival. I would like to just jump into that now, if I could. What, what mm-hmm. You kind of mentioned it a little bit ago, but what does a revival look like, a, a Eucharistic revival? Who's involved in that? What's involved in that as you see it right now? I know it's still in process, and and this is yeah. a multi-year plan, but how do you see that happening?
1: Yeah, we're speaking about it as first, we want to affect the church at every level. So there's going to be a diocesan year, a parish year, and kind of a national year, right? Mm-hmm. And um, we're also talking about what we call a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. So from the top, we're going to provide programs, and we'll ask bishops to have point persons that will help to roll this out. The diocesan year of the revival begins at Corpus Christi 2022, June 20th, 2022. And so we hope at the beginning of that year to have Eucharistic processions in hundreds of dioceses around the country. We uh, hope at the end of that year to have Eucharistic congresses in the diocese, right? Mm. Whether that's just a day or a two-day event where we could have national speakers uh, come in, where we can invite the diocese to renew their own Eucharistic faith. And during that year, lots of opportunities for diocesan level renewal, Uh, convocations for priests on the importance of their own love for the Eucharist and helping them rekindle that. Diocesan leaders, parish staffs, parish leaders, um, events around the diocese for young adults and youth to gather together in regions where they can experience the truth, the beauty, and the goodness of the Eucharist. So we'll provide that kind of plan that bishops can implement but then we're also really resourcing um, collaborators. In other words, we know that if this revival falls on the structures of a diocese and a parish, which are already taxed, right. it's going to really struggle. And so, for example, the Knights of Columbus have become a major collaborator in this event, and they're going to train their men how to do Eucharistic processions, and they they love that. And uh, and so we'll have foot soldiers in every parish able <laughs> to help with all these things. Um, We've engaged the charismatic renewal and both in English and in Spanish to to offer um, teaching and worship of the Eucharist. We hope that um, other youth apostolates like NCYC and Steubenville Conferences and FOCUS, who offer these national conferences that are quite powerful, Mm -hmm. will focus during these years on renewing young people's faith in the Eucharist so that there's a sense of There's there's an area where all of us who love the Eucharist are working together for a few years to revive the faith in the Eucharist of the Church of the United States. So the second year then is the parish year, and that year we'll focus on parish small groups and parish opportunities for increasing adoration, also opportunities for service and evangelization. Flowing from those small groups and that time, those times of adoration, strengthening the Eucharistic worship of the Sunday experience, right? Helping parishes to try to do that well. What we call the Ars celebrandi the art of celebrating the Eucharist well, so that the truth and beauty and goodness of our teaching comes through. So and then as, as we're doing that parish revival we're really hoping to have a national Eucharistic procession leading to a national Eucharistic Congress Hmm. in the summer of 2024. So we're right now looking at the best city to host that national Eucharistic Congress.
0: Des Moines, Iowa.
1: (laughs) We are looking to the Midwest. Midwest people should be encouraged. (laughs) Hey, is this
0: heaven? No, it's Iowa. You can't get better uh, promotion than that.
1: That's right. So, uh, but we also really want to bring the blessed sacrament, to the people who couldn't come to a national event and so we working with the Knights of Columbus and other partners we want to do a national Eucharistic procession so we would go from region to region and have events in those regions all the way all around with bishops could gather together young people they could gather together different groups pray for healing of the Eucharist mm. and have this sense that the whole country is in procession to a national Eucharistic congress mm. you know we used to do national Eucharistic congresses about every 10 years in this country And there's still an international Eucharistic Congress movement. It'll be in Budapest in September. Pope Francis is Mm -hmm. going. And uh, uh, we want to renew that tradition, you know, Mm -hmm. by having a national Eucharistic Congress and inviting people to come together and be renewed in their love for the Eucharist and then really be sent on mission. That would be the goal of that Congress to form missionaries Mm -hmm. and then to give them tools in the year of 2425, which is the third year of the revival to be able to reach out and witness to our, to the beauty of our teaching on the Eucharist.
0: I had the, uh, you mentioned International Eucharistic Congresses. The the only one I've attended was in Ireland. I think it was 2012. I was there giving a paper um, at Maynooth Seminary, Um, but it was a wonderful experience. And as you say, you had the feeling of an entire country that was caught up in this spiritual movement and procession, um, you know, towards Christ and the Eucharist. So I I would love to. Have. I mean, I really look forward to the United States participating in that in some way. Um, this is all wonderful and exciting. So I want to keep moving through these questions as we as yeah. we get closer to the end of time here. And you, you sort of touched on this, um, I guess, in general, we can say the goal is, as you know, the goals of the new evangelization, the sense of reengaging people's faith and different, different uh, groups of people, you know, the people that are still in the pews, the people that have left the pews. Um, and the people that have never come in and sat in the pews. Uh, We really have those three sort of groups in mind. Um, Are there any more specific goals in your mind other than rekindling that faith? Yes, go ahead. Yeah,
1: so uh, Mm -hmm. when we talk about the mission of this revival, we say it is to renew the church Mm -hmm. by enkindling a living relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Holy Eucharist. So our goal is really, here's the source and summit of our faith. We want to renew the church. And you're right, we're really focused on First, just the, what we would call our core, you know, those people who already believe in the real presence of the Eucharist, but we want them to draw deeper into the mystery and to know how to explain it and invite others to it. Mm-hmm. But then there's that other group, the people who are connected to the church, and they come to Mass on Sunday, maybe not every Sunday, but they, you know, they might come to Mass once or twice a month, but they if you had asked them, they'd say, oh, yeah, I'm a Catholic, and I'm a good Catholic, you know, I might be the best mm-hmm. Catholic I know, <laughs> even though I only go to Mass once a month, you know, and um, mm-hmm. But those people, we want to help them be drawn into a much deeper understanding of the Eucharist so that they understand this is life and it's life itself. And they can, can be drawn into that. And then we want to motivate those other those people to reach out to that, that third group, which is maybe they were baptized Catholic, maybe they've made their first communion, but they rarely come to church. If they do, it's Christmas or Easter. Mm-hmm. And how can we let them know mm-hmm. that um, Jesus is longing for them? Uh, and he's longing for them to come to the wedding banquet, <laughs> which he has prepared for them, and which is their destiny in eternal life. And It's that banquet of the Eucharist. So our vision is really, we say, a movement of Catholics across the United States healed, converted, formed, and unified by an encounter with Jesus in the Eucharist, and then sent out in mission for the life of the world. So we really uh, desire that um, that we would be able to Help people come to those deeper goals of healing, conversion, formation, and unity as part of this revival.
0: Boy, we need unity now, don't we? And um, so for so many reasons and in so many sectors of society. Uh, let's move on. We've talked about the vision, the energy, the hope that's behind this effort and that's leading this effort towards revival. Let's talk about the challenges that you foresee. Um what right off the bat maybe has already manifested itself as a challenge to not only the like a logistical challenge to pulling off the revival, but perhaps spiritual challenges, perhaps challenge a cultural challenge, um, mm-hmm. secularization. Mm-hmm. What sorts of challenges do you see facing this effort?
1: There are many of them. Um, you know, first, just the fact that as a church and church leaders were taxed, and COVID has been a very taxing experience for pastors and other people who work in the church and budgets have been taxed and so there are definitely those kinds of challenges to trying to do a national initiative that's why we believe it's so important to reach out to partners and and to capitalize on the energy and love that so many people have for the Eucharist so that we can help support those already taxed structures right yeah but then there's also as we just mentioned the division that's present in the culture and in our church and some of it's around the Eucharist and it's one of the reasons we need this initiative is to help hold up the truth that we're all united in the Eucharist and that um, Jesus wants us to be united in the Eucharist and that this is the heart of who we are. So that challenge of division, I think, is going to continue to be a division, a problem going forward as we try to deal with that. And then the third one is, you're right, the secular challenges, so those of the of the world. <laughs> and just the fact that um, people have trouble believing that something could be true that I don't see something could be objective and real that I can't sense. Right. Mm -hmm. We kind of live in a scientistic world where we think that the things that are true can be proven by science, even though, you know, we all know that the most important things in life we can't prove by science. I can't prove to you that my mother loves me, yet I'd be willing to die for my mother. You know, mm-hmm. I have lots of evidence that she loves me, but none of it proves it. Maybe, maybe my dad's been paying her on the side all these years. I don't know, <laughs> 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 right? So, uh, so this, this idea that uh, what's true is only things that can be proved and that what's real is only what can be seen or sensed. Um, that's a very modern materialistic idea that we have to overcome to help people understand there's a whole unseen world a world that's actually more important that's eternal that's true that is um real and it comes to us through the sacraments that sacramental worldview is really a a big obstacle to overcome for people in our culture
0: yeah Let's talk uh, for for the remainder of our time, uh, which is a couple of minutes. Let's just talk briefly, but frankly, about some of the difficulties some people have, for example, those who are divorced or remarried, but maybe have not had their marriage annulled, or other groups of people, for whatever reasons, uh, do not feel allowed to receive Eucharist or welcome to receive Eucharist. And, And we know that the church wants to love and welcome everyone and that there is a pastoral process that everyone needs to move through. And it's a a penitential one, no matter what someone's situation is, it's all about reconciliation with one another and with God. And the Eucharist is that beautiful, perfect symbol of that. What what wisdom do the bishops have, or what wisdom is there in the pastoral planning to help deal with those super sensitive issues where people feel they cannot come to Eucharist, and yet we're going to have Eucharistic uh, processions and Eucharistic congresses how, and you mentioned healing earlier. How how are we going to do that, Bishop? I really want to do that. How are we going to do that?
1: So healing doesn't happen by pretending obstacles don't exist. So that's mm-hmm. the first thing, right?
0: Mm-hmm. So if a
1: person is married outside the church, for example, and mm-hmm. divorced and remarried or something like that, we we don't simply want to pretend that that doesn't matter mm-hmm. because that that's not real healing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Real healing means I have to deal with the real obstacles and. That means sometimes we have to enter into those wounds and let the pus out. (laughs) And that's Mm -hmm. where real uh, connecting with a priest or a pastoral counselor who can help us to come to the real healing is so important.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: really people need individual accompaniment in order to be able to walk towards Jesus in the Eucharist. And that can't always happen immediately. We know that. Mm. Um, I've worked with many people who um, who. They're on their way back to the Eucharist, but they're not ready to receive the Eucharist yet. But that doesn't mean they can't be close to Jesus. Right. And, of course, this is one of the beauties of Eucharistic adoration. Anybody, Protestants, atheists, they can all come to Eucharistic adoration.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And there's a way to be in communion, real uh, communion with Jesus there. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, we always want people to come to the fullness of communion and we want to walk with people. But life is complex and and we have uh, things that sometimes take time to reconcile and times to heal mm-hmm. and what's important is people understand the church's desire to walk with them through those difficult times and conversations in order to try to deal with whatever struggles have come up in life mm-hmm. and if that doesn't mean I can immediately come back to communion it doesn't mean I can't begin the healing process that leads mm-hmm. to communion mm-hmm. and we've as priests you know we've had those opportunities deacons too to, to work with people. And, you know, I've of course had those times where I had to have a difficult conversation and tell Mm -hmm. a person that they couldn't come to communion right now. But when I've been able then to walk with them at months, sometimes even years, and then eventually they receive an annulment or they are able to, uh, you know, be reconciled with the church fully when they finally receive communion, it's a really beautiful thing and much better than if I had short circuited that process and just said, well, let's pretend that You're not married outside the church and just come to communion. That didn't that wouldn't have really helped all the healing that needed to happen in that process. And so we do have to deal with those issues, but the best way to deal with them is through that personal accompaniment.
0: And that sounds, I mean, that's one of my favorite words, by the way. And and Pope Francis, who gave, I mean, that word mm-hmm. predates him, but when he uh in the joy of the gospel really just you talk about lighting a fire. That word lights a fire to this idea of wow. We really need to focus on our relationships with others. We really need to be building strong bonds of charity and respect. Um, and we and we have to be willing to put in the time it takes. To foster exactly. those relationships. And when you say walking, because I think, I, I know some, we might have hearers who, who hear this show and think we have a schedule to keep with this revival. It's going to, you know, and this year, this is happening, da, 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 and we're programming and that's all great. But that spiritual walk with others that you just said, I really think will be at the core of any transformation that's going to be happening.
1: And that's what we want to do is equip our people with that passion and patience to yeah. walk with people. Yeah. Yep.
0: That's exciting. Uh, one other thought, and then we'll go to our thank yous. And I always ask our guests to bless uh, our listeners. So I, I'm definitely going to ask you for your blessing. Um, I had a friend when I was back in college, University of Iowa, who was a Muslim and they St. Patrick's, which at the time before the tornado destroyed it was right downtown in Iowa city. It was the only perpetual adoration chapel around. And I remember walking with him and just feeling prompted to invite him inside. To come and see Jesus in the Eucharist. And I tried to, <laughs> And what kind of catechesis can you do in five minutes, but I tried to explain. And we walk down these steps into an old musty room in a basement where you have a couple of old ladies, some, one's knitting, one's reading a book, and here's the Eucharist and the monstrance. And I, I uh, you know, I genuflect and then I sit down and he sits with me patiently, calmly for about 10 minutes. And then we walk out and he says to me, do you really believe that's Jesus in the Eucharist? And I said, do you believe that's God? And I said, yeah. He goes, wow. He says, if I if I really believe that was my God, I could not even get up off the floor. Uh, mm-hmm. It was an incredible moment for me, a, a real check. Uh, you're doing the right things, Matt, but do you really believe this? And mm-hmm. I think that's going to be the challenge of this revival for anybody. Uh, any All those groups we mentioned and people at whatever, wherever they are in their faith journey, everyone can go deeper. And I think this revival is, is a wonderful enkindling for that.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah i couldn't agree more and it is the scandal of the incarnation right god right so close to us right. and it's that great balance of ne- never taking that for granted even right. as we have to accept he wants to love us that much that he comes to us as our food
0: right it's unbelievable it is so vulnerable so quiet mm-hmm. um he's such a good such a good god to quote john vianney st john vianney all right so bishop thank you First of all, I know you're a very busy man. Um, The life of the auxiliary is busy, busy, busy. And um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your words and for letting our listeners know more about this revival.
1: You're very welcome.
0: All right. And as we always do at the end of our Chattachesis episodes, I'd like you to offer our listeners and myself a blessing.
1: May the blessing of Almighty God descend upon each of you and remain with you forever, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
0: Amen. Amen. Again, this is another ep- episode of Catechesis. I'm your host, Deacon Matt Hallback, Deacon of the Diocese of Des Moines, Iowa, and Executive Director of Catechesis for William H. Sadler, Inc. We just chatted with Bishop Andrew Cousins, Auxiliary Bishop in the Archdiocese of St. Paul, Minneapolis, also Chairman of the USCCB Committee on Evangelization and Catechesis. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we'll chat with you next time. Thank you for listening to another episode of Chattachesis. Head over to sadlyreligion.com forward slash podcast to hear more. And don't forget to request your sample and trial of Christ in Us and our bilingual edition, Cristo in nosotros at sadlyreligion.com forward slash CIU.